0: Um, Great to be back. Uh, If you haven't met me before, my name's Yaron. Helen and I were members here for three or four years, but we had to move to the south side of Brisbane. So uh, we have been at a local church down there for the last 18 months or so, Uh, Grace Bible Church in Logan. I saw a few of you uh, here yesterday in the afternoon and... I must say, I wasn't expecting to be back here until maybe uh, the Thanksgiving service in October, Um, but as Mike uh, has come down uh, with something the last 24 hours or so, uh, he asked if I wouldn't mind coming and uh, filling in um, while Matt's away too, up north as we've heard. So, I'm going to take a break from your uh, series in Romans uh, and look at 2 Peter together this morning. So you do have your Bibles with you, uh, maybe uh, turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, and I'll, I'll give you a moment to turn there and uh, I'll read the passage in a moment. So 2 Peter chapter 3. I'm reading from uh, verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. On that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will burn and be dissolved, and the earth and the works on it will be disclosed. Since all these things are to be dissolved in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness, as you wait for the day of God and hasten its coming. Because of that day, the heavens will be dissolved with fire and the elements will melt with heat. But based on his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, uh, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Uh, Let me pray and we'll look at this passage uh, together. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that you are such a gracious God to us. Uh, You show your kindness and your mercy to us in so many ways each day. Uh, Forgive us that many of these we take for granted. Help us instead to deeply treasure Uh, the signs of your work in us and among us. And please be at work uh, in the hearts of everyone here this morning. Uh, Please be with me as I speak your word. Help me to speak uh, clearly, uh, truthfully, uh, and in a way that's uh, that's helpful to communicate the truths of this passage uh, to your people here this morning. And please uh, help uh, each one of us to receive your word uh, with gladness, with awe, and... Uh, with a readiness to be uh, obedient and put into practice what we hear. We pray that your spirit will be uh, with us and moving among us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I want to introduce you to someone, sort of. Uh, This is Caroline Orkeston up on the screen. Uh, ABC News ran a story about this woman last year uh, and the very important work that she does. Uh, Caroline travels to towns uh, along the Alpine Fault in New Zealand uh, to ensure that locals are aware of an impending disaster. That's because there's an 80% chance of their region being devastated by a magnitude 8 earthquake uh, sometime in the next 50 years. Of course no one can predict exactly when such a seismic event will occur Uh, but it's more or less a scientific certainty that it will happen within the lifetime of many people living in this area today. So Caroline's mission is to ensure that people along the fault lines know what is coming. She's giving them the chance to prepare their families, their businesses and their communities for life on the other side of large-scale destruction. As he neared the end of his life and ministry, the Apostle Peter also had a mission to warn people of an earth-shaking event. He also wanted them to prepare for the kind of lives that they'd live after it. But it wasn't merely a, a local event that would cause a national disaster. Instead, Peter warns of a global catastrophe, one that will mark the end of human history as we know it. And he wants to prepare us not for survival in a disaster-ravaged society, but for eternal flourishing in a completely new world. Essentially, the message of the passage we, we just read this morning, 2 Peter 3, 10-14, is this. Pursue holiness and godliness for the Lord is coming. Uh, To unpack that for us this morning, uh, first we'll look at what this passage teaches us about the coming day of the Lord. Second, we'll consider what holiness and godliness actually mean. And third, I want to talk about the result. uh, What happens if we do indeed live holy and godly lives while we wait for the Lord's return? The day of the Lord is an important uh, part of our faith. As uh, the Nicene Creed, one of the uh, ancient summaries of the Christian faith, says, Christ will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will never end. The day of the Lord is the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ to the whole world to judge all of humanity and to be the saviour of his church, and to the ruler of God's everlasting kingdom. Uh, We'll unpack verse 10 in a moment, but if you glance there now in your Bible, we see that this day is sudden and unexpected. It affects the very elements of the physical universe, and it spells the end of human history as we know it. For everything that, men and women have done since the time of Eden, will be put on trial before King Jesus. However, just as Peter predicted uh, in the earlier part of this chapter, many people today doubt the coming of this day, or even mock the idea of it. Uh, Let me make two important observations in relation to this. Firstly, uh, even if our non-Christian neighbours don't take the idea of Christ returning very seriously, it's not as if they've escaped from a sense of apocalyptic doom themselves. As Christian belief has been rejected by many in the West, people have simply adopted secular views of doom that they fear will bring the end of civilization. Uh, following World War II, there was significant fear of nuclear annihilation. Uh, some of you here would be old enough to have probably experienced uh, drills where you evacuated to, um, to bunkers or to fallout shelters uh, at the threat of a nuclear attack. These fears still lingered when I was growing up in the, in the early 90s, even after the Cold War had finished. Russian aggression in Ukraine has uh, revived people's fear uh, of a nuclear attack and the, and the consequences of it. Uh, around 20 years ago when I was in high school, I remember people were scared that a massive asteroid would hit the Earth in 2019. Uh, as calendar tells me, we've, uh, we've dodged that one at least. Uh, lately, climate change has served as a major global threat in the minds of many. And it's interesting uh, that the world's richest man, Elon Musk, uh, has spent millions of dollars to protect us from the development of malicious artificial intelligence, which he sees as the greatest threat to human civilization. So it appears that the idea of a world-ending catastrophe just won't go away. Here's a second observation I wanted to make. The widespread ignorance in society regarding the day of the Lord and even the de-emphasizing of it amongst many Christians should make us consider seriously how close at hand it might be. Peter tells us in verse 10 that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will be unexpected. The more people aren't thinking about it, the closer it may in fact be. The coming of this day is stealthy and surprising, but it is anything but subtle. Peter describes it as noisy, scorching, terrifying. And there's two aspects of it that demand our attention. One is natural destruction, and the other is moral exposure. The future reality of natural destruction is very stark. Twice we're told about the burning up of the heavens and the very elements of the world being dissolved. It's no accident that uh, Peter speaks about Noah's flood earlier in this same chapter. You may recall that God promised Noah never to flood the world again. But Peter points out that the final judgment is not one of water, but of fire. Verse 7 of chapter 3, he says, The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, we have fresh experience in Australia, even in Brisbane, uh, of flooding. But not long ago, much of this country was on fire. In January 2020, our screens were filled with horrific images that showed us ground zero of a disaster that ravaged people's property and possessions and even took away people's lives. Even from space, the crew of the International Space Station could look down and see smoke rising from across Australia. Well, Peter is talking about an even greater inferno one that consumes things above, around, and beyond the earth. One which cannot be watched from a safe distance. Now, if people knew that a bushfire was headed their way and they didn't do everything humanly possible to prepare for it, we would call them fools. And yet so many people hear of the coming fires of judgment and they dismiss it out of hand, or they get distracted by other things. But we ignore this reality at our peril. Because something even more terrifying is coming on that day than the burning up of the elements. Uh, Peter tells us at the end of verse 10 that every deed done on the earth will be exposed, laid bare, found out. This is a chilling reality that echoes throughout the New Testament. In his warning against hypocrisy, Jesus said, There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed, or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5 that when the Lord comes he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And John's revelation tells us of a time when he saw the dead, the great and small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. This day of moral reckoning is actually crucial to the Gospel message. It is the day on which everyone who's ever lived will give an answer for every deed they have ever done. And of course, there will be enough guilt to convict everyone. But that's what the cross of Jesus saves us from, from having to stand alone before God on that day and hear the record of our every hour on earth read out in the presence of the universe with each line adding to our eternal condemnation. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 5 when he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, Knowing that, Christ has borne the penalty for all our misdeeds on the cross means that we don't need to be filled with hopelessness or dread about the day that we meet our Maker. Instead, we can come to Him today as our loving Father. And when we do appear before the bench of His supreme justice, we can rest assured that He will not condemn us for the sins that Jesus has already suffered for. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you can experience forgiveness instead of judgment. Everlasting peace with God if you turn towards Him in humble repentance and trust in Jesus to save you on that day when we all appear before Him. If you're a Christian here this morning, God wants you to know that your sins are forgiven. You do not have to fear condemnation. But God doesn't want you to be complacent about your moral conduct as you wait for the day of the Lord. Quite the opposite. He wants us to be diligent in preparing ourselves for the eternal lives that we'll live as citizens in the realm of righteousness. And so this is the second point in our outline. Our response to the approach of the Lord's coming is to live lives of godliness and holiness. This is something that Peter's been emphasising throughout his letter up to this point. Back in the first chapter of 2 Peter, he said, God's divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness that through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Peter urges believers to cultivate the kind of godly spiritual qualities that will confirm their calling and election and supply an entry for them into the eternal kingdom. And in chapter 2, he warns of people being seduced by false teaching and becoming slaves of corruption, uh, dooming themselves to a worse spiritual state than they were in before they came to know the way of righteousness. And in chapter 3, before we get to the passage that we're looking at this morning, Peter's already warned of people who follow their own sinful desires and he has stressed the need for repentance. Repentance. And so he tells us in verse 11 that if the physical universe is going to be dissolved, we can't live like people who take our salvation for granted. We need to be people who are characterized by holiness and godliness. People who are preparing to live in a new world where righteousness dwells. A few years ago, uh, the most popular program being aired on National Geographic Channel was Doomsday Preppers. It featured people who were making practical preparations to help them survive in a, a national or global disaster or a collapse of society. Perhaps what made it work as a series is the fact that there's just such variety in the threats that people are anticipating and yet such a consistent and solemn determination to be ready for disaster when it comes. Uh, Terrorist attacks with biological weapons, radioactive dirty bombs, volcanic explosions, polar shifts, solar flares, economic collapse, civil uprisings, global pandemics. These are all major threats that have some people concerned enough to invest significant time, money, and energy uh, to try and prevent the hypothetical impact of these events on their lives. Uh, One guy who appeared in the series and got his own spin-off show uh, conscripted his family to help him build a medieval castle uh, in the South Carolina forest. And the theory goes that if America's power grid ever gets taken out, by an electromagnetic pulse attack, then they'll be fine because they live in a castle. Uh, This doomsday dad puts his kids through rigorous training to equip them for the kind of scenarios that he imagines them having to survive in. One where they have to hunt for their own food, where they have to function without outside uh, assistance, and where... They maybe have to fend off looters who are coming and trying to get their resources. In a sense, uh, Peter is trying to instruct us in a similar way. If we know that the day of the Lord is coming, it needs to define our identity and our attitude every day. If you know the kind of world that you're going to inhabit after that fearful event, then you need to be preparing yourself to live in it. But the main words that Peter uses to describe our preparedness are holiness or holy conduct, depending on your translation, uh, and godliness. You've heard these words before, no doubt, but what do they actually mean? Are they the same thing, holiness and godliness? Uh, If not, then what's the difference? Uh, I've spent... A lot of time thinking about this. Uh, the research that I did for a number of years and the, the thesis that I ended up publishing a, a book on, godliness is one of the main uh, themes in it. And so this was one of the questions that I spent time thinking of. Is there a distinction between godliness and holiness? What can we say about these important concepts in the Christian life. And so here's the understanding I've arrived at, five years or so of contemplating in a nutshell. Holiness and godliness overlap significantly in meaning, but they are distinctive ideas. Holiness refers mainly to our status and our identity as people who've been set apart for God. Godliness refers mainly to our attitude and our affections towards God as our awesome and amazing King. To show that the two aren't completely interchangeable words, I consider this. The Old Testament speaks of holy objects like vessels in the temple, but we never hear of godly objects. The most sacred place in the Jewish temple was called the Holy of Holies, but never the godly of godlies. And even God himself is regularly described as holy, but never as godly. And we know it isn't proper to call the third person of the Trinity the godly spirit, even if we're not really sure why. Some might think it's because godly means being like God, similar to how we use Christ-like, but that's not quite it. The reason that we don't call God godly is because godliness is a worship word. The Greek word for godliness means a right reverence or an a appropriate worship of someone or something. It's a word that describes the response that creatures should have towards their creator, a holy reverence in their heart towards the God who made them. God is jealous for his own glory and he defends it against impostors, but he doesn't worship himself. And therefore, it doesn't make sense to speak of God's godliness. But God's holiness sums up the perfect moral purity of his nature and also his uniqueness as a being without compare in the universe. God is unlike any other thing in existence, both with respect to his perfect love of everything that's good and his hatred of all evil, but also regarding the infinite uh, glory of his being. There is simply no one like God. And so for us to be holy or set apart to God means to be categorically different to all other things in the world. It means being morally different to those around us. We increasingly love what is right and hate what is evil in accordance with God's will revealed to us in his word by his spirit and through his Son. Holiness means that we start to reflect in our lives what we have come to see and know of our Holy God. And so here's my attempt at explaining how the two go together, how we live lives of holiness and godliness. Now first, God reveals himself to us, and we behold his glory and his holiness. But then what happens to us? Godliness is our heart responding with awe and affection towards God. This produces worship of God from the heart. But holiness is where we come to see ourselves as belonging to God. And this produces a desire in us to emulate His character and to represent Him in the world. Godliness, we can think of it as awe leading to worship, our devotion. Holiness is our belonging to God, leading to uh, what we become and how we act. And so, if we're to live lives of godliness and holiness, as Peter calls us to here, we must ensure that we continually gaze upon the glory and holiness of our God. The God who in the Old Testament descended upon Mount Sinai in fire and spoke with roaring thunder to the Israelites. That God is soon going to visibly burst onto the scene of global history and manifest his glory to all humanity. The God who in the New Testament is described as a consuming fire, is coming to incinerate all wickedness and ungodliness. But despite the terrifying nature of our Lord's return, it's actually something we can wholeheartedly look forward to. Because as Hebrews 12 tells us, the God who is an awesome blazing fire and the holy judge of all is welcoming us into his eternal society Through the grace shown to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a picture not of terror, but of celebration, festivity, jubilation, the everlasting joy of being pure in the presence of our Holy God. And so the attitude that Peter wants us to have towards this day is not trepidation or or fearful trembling, it's anticipation excitement, hope. Can you see the word that's repeated there in uh, verses 12, 13, and 14? Wait, wait, wait. While the day of the Lord's coming is a fearful thing, God doesn't intend for us to move away from him in terror, but rather to move towards him in faith to constantly anticipate and eagerly desire this day when we see him in his glory and when we're made like him. For if you are trusting in Christ, this will be the most wonderful day of your life. And this brings us to the result of our response to the reality of Christ's return. If we live holy and godly lives, what will the outcome be? Well, there's an interesting possibility raised there in verse 12. Most of our English translations include a phrase which suggests that by living lives of godliness and holiness, we'll actually hasten the coming of the day of the Lord, speed it up. And there's evidence in favor of this interpretation. At the very end of the Bible, we are encouraged to pray for Christ's swift return in accordance with his own promise. We can even say it's natural to suppose that Peter might be talking about the godly speeding up the day of the Lord since he begins this chapter condemning those who mock God's supposed slowness in fulfilling his promises. As appealing as this possibility might be, I'm inclined to go with the minority report on this verse and agree with the way uh, that the Holman Christian Standard Bible puts it. I'll, I'll read from verse 11 so you get the full sentence. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming. Of the day of God. Rather than suggesting that our motivation for holiness and godliness is that we'll make Jesus come back faster if we're sanctified enough, I'm more persuaded that Peter is using two Greek words to intensify the idea of waiting. What I'm saying is we we shouldn't just be waiting around for the Lord to return, like you're waiting at the bus stop for the bus to show up. It should be the case that we really, really can't wait for Him to come back. Think of a child looking forward to Christmas or a birthday party, a bride and groom looking forward to the wedding day or the wedding night. Multiply the intensity of that And I think that's how eager Peter wants us to be, waiting and anticipating Christ's appearing. So instead of the result of our holiness and godliness being that we make Jesus return quicker, it's actually our constant desire for Jesus to return that helps us live godlier and holier lives while we wait. So let's return to the question, what is the result of us living holy and godly lives in anticipation of the second coming? The doomsday preppers that we mentioned earlier are people who are determined to adapt for survival after an event that alters the world in a radical way. They think about what daily life might be like in a scary new world, and they seek to prepare their loved ones to live in it effectively. Now, we too have forewarning of great destruction that is coming. And we know what kind of world we'll live in, and we have some clues as to what our roles in it might be. But our preparation for it looks a lot different to that of a doomsday prepper. Peter's not calling us to become shrewd and savvy survivalists. We're not supposed to be preoccupied with what might go wrong in the world and how we can best tough it out. Rather, we're supposed to focus on how we can be fit for the world that we're going to live in forever after Jesus comes. Because true Christians are not headed for a hopeless wasteland. Our destination, our future home, is a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The outcome of taking the second coming seriously here and now and cultivating holiness and godliness in our lives is that when Jesus returns, we'll be ready to live eternal lives in the realms of righteousness. We saw earlier that beholding God and responding with adoration and awe is what godliness is all about. And that's kind of a description of the eternal society that we're headed for. One that revolves completely around God. One where God is always at the centre. We saw that holiness is expressing our identity as people who belong to God, reflecting His glory back to Him. That's pretty much our eternal job description. That's what you'll be doing for eternity. And so we pursue these things now in anticipation of the hope that from the day of Christ's coming onwards we will be able to be and do perfectly what we can now only manage in part. So our job from this day forward is to remind ourselves of the day that is soon coming. To focus on the glory of Christ appearing so our hearts can be filled with that affection and anticipation. To live day by day in a way that demonstrates that we know what kind of world we're going to live in. And we're getting ready for it. Uh, How are you going with this this morning? If godliness and holiness are the cultural hallmarks of the society that we're headed for, and you arrived there tomorrow, would it feel more like a homecoming? Or like you've been uprooted and plonked in a foreign city? Before we close, let me offer a few points on how we might grow daily in our preparation for life in our future home. First, I'd really encourage you, don't avoid the passages of Scripture that emphasize Christ's return or the Day of Judgment. They're confronting, maybe even scary, but we need them. Make them a regular part of your devotional diet. If you haven't read a book like Revelation recently, uh, I'd encourage you to think about picking it up, having a go. If you're reading these passages and you encounter things that you find troubling or confusing, talk to some other Christians at church about it. If you're challenged or encouraged as you read, uh, be sure to talk to other Christians about that too, so that they too can be affected by the reality of Christ's coming. Uh, Second, uh, if we want to grow in godliness and holiness, we must regularly meditate on the glory and holiness of God. Your affection for God will only grow if you've spent time admiring His beauty and His perfections. Your reflection of his glory in your lifestyle and your behaviour will only increase if you've been giving serious thought to his character. One of the men at uh, Grace Bible Church uh, shared last year at our uh, men's fellowship um, lunch a a quote that I thought is really helpful and captures uh, some of this. He said, if we have an obedience problem we probably have an adoration problem. And if we have an adoration problem, it's probably because we have a meditation problem. So if we're not obeying God enough, perhaps it's because we're not adoring God enough. And if we're not adoring God enough, perhaps it's because we're not meditating on who He is enough, thinking about Him. Third, um, I encourage you to take stock of your life by asking the question, do my plans for today reflect that I'm eagerly awaiting the Lord's return? Do my plans for the coming weeks, months and years suggest that I'm doing my utmost to prepare for Christ's coming? The answer will most likely be no. So what what might you need to do differently? Augustine, the great uh, Christian thinker reportedly expressed the wish that when Jesus came he would find him either praying or preaching either speaking to God or speaking for God as Spurgeon paraphrased him. Have you ever given much thought to what you would want to be found doing when the Lord returns? And whatever your answer to that is, If he found you doing it, is it because you do it regularly enough that it's a habit and that that's what he's likely to find you doing, or would it be a complete fluke if he found you doing it? Which brings me to my final point from the passage. Take Peter's words in verse 14 to heart. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. While you pursue holiness and godliness, beware of anything that may corrupt your way of life. Earlier in 2 Peter, those who are spotted and blemished by sin are people who've believed lies that grant them permission to live life however they want and to follow their fleshly desires. Immorality, pornography, dirty thoughts, filthy talk, these things can defile us as we wait for Christ's return. Greed might tarnish your integrity by feeding your self-indulgent appetites. If you're older, perhaps it's easier to indulge in the comforts of retirement and not to be as active in good works and charitable giving as you once were. If you're younger, maybe greed leads you to download or stream stuff that you know you should be paying for. Or maybe lust entices you to pay for things that you know you shouldn't be viewing. Workers, uh, perhaps you've been pinching stuff at work lying on your timesheets, or you compromise your holiness in the workplace by doing things that you know are unethical or illegal because it helps keep you in with your colleagues and your supervisors. I mean, how else can anyone expect to get ahead in life? This is the other side to the coin that we considered a moment ago. When you're faced with these kind of temptations, ask yourself, would I want to be found doing these things at the moment that Christ appears in his glory? If you're tempted to corrupt your way of life because you envy your unbelieving friends, colleagues, neighbours, remember, the things that they live for are going to burn. And the way that they lived to get those things is about to be judged by God. Brothers, sisters, the day of the Lord is at hand. May God grant each of us the grace to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him when the King comes. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are an awesome God, great and powerful, holy and true in all your ways. And yet we thank you that you are merciful to us to make yourself known to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus, and to graciously pour your Spirit into the hearts of believers and call us your children. I pray for all who believe here this morning that you will Increase their resolve uh, anew and afresh to be prepared for the coming of their King and to live lives that glorify you as we wait. Lord, if there's any that don't know you yet here this morning, may they hear the warning that you've given them of the day that is coming. May they see clearly that if they are judged for their sins, the end is condemnation but that the gospel of the Lord Jesus offers them hope, offers them forgiveness, offers them life right here today if they will come forward and take it. Be with us this week and enable us to live differently for you in light of the word we've heard this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.